the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for a special episode on all things biodiversity. Coming up on today's episode, we chat to the Woodland Trust Principal Conservation Advisor, Chris Reed, to hear about what the pandemic has meant for nature conservation and restoration projects across the UK. Earth Securities founder and chief executive, Alejandro Litovitsky, discusses how businesses can overcome challenges with financing nature-based projects and measuring their impacts. And Patagonia's recently appointed Environmental Action and Initiatives Director for the EMEA region, Beth Foran, gives her thoughts on what it means to be a nature leader, both as a business and an individual professional, in 2021 and beyond. Yes, a very warm welcome to today's edition of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. I'm ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm delighted to be joined in the uh, virtual ED content studio by our content editor, Matt Mace. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Yeah, virtual uh, studio. I've actually moved in my house. I'm now up in an actual office rather than the kind of breakfast bar downstairs. So it actually does feel a bit like a studio. It might be slightly more echoey as well. But um, yeah, glad to be here. And glad to have you and your professional office. My office is just full of knickknacks, plants and plushies. Mine mine, mine will be soon. Yeah, just getting the bookcase in and then it will be, uh, yeah, it will be pretty much just a, a den. For sure. And while we're going to be talking about sustainable offices later in the year, this episode is all about nature and biodiversity. With the 15th Biodiversity COP on the horizon, not to mention the G7 Summit and COP26 right here in the UK, where everyone in this space is hoping that nature will get a seat at the table. We are asking what true leadership on this issue in the public and private sectors looks like in 2021. Um, Matt, I know you've actually been leading a lot of our news coverage on biodiversity since we got back from Christmas. It's just naturally fallen a little bit more um, to you. And I know there's been a lot going on here, um, not to mention, chief among them all, the Dasgupta review. So would you kindly give us a, a little recap to give us a, a taster for this episode? I, I'll, I'll do my best. Sure. I mean, I I remember this is a long time ago. But we were in I think we were in Birmingham for the 30 under 30 workshops. And I was talking to some of the members there. So this must have been 2019. The before times. Yeah, before the, 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 when we were allowed outdoors and to go places. And I was talking to some of them about what they feel the big kind of movements in sustainability were. And some of the real discussions there were, were about biodiversity and how that was really set for a takeoff in 2020. Um, much like with things with 2020, it all kind of got delayed um, because of COVID. But we were seeing business announcements around biodiversity net gain amongst the construction sector for example we were mm-hmm. seeing a lot of commitments from businesses to kind of double down on deforestation and supply chains mainly because they're all going to miss their 2020 targets to eliminate deforestation from their supply chains um the government had obviously commissioned this big review into um biodiversity and and it's uh, i suppose economic value which of course is the the scope review um, and all that kind of just ticked along in the, in the background and amongst all the stuff around plastics and climate strikes, biodiversity from a business lens, which is kind of ticking along very nicely. And then, yeah, as we started 2021, it it just it just took off. Um, it just took off. We've seen um, a lot of big announcements, but the descriptor review is, is the big one. Um, and for those, I suppose, unaware, it's, it's essentially it, the most important aspect of this. It's commissioned by the government. This is the government mm-hmm. trying to find out um, how biodiversity impacts the economy. It's the biggest review of its kind. Um, and one of the main aims of it is to create insight into how financial and policy decisions can reverse biodiversity, but also how they can account for nature as part of economic decision making. We got that review uh, at the start of this month, actually. Um, and there's already some understanding of the economic value of it. Um, I think it's uh, the World Economic Forum says that it's kind of more than half of total GDP, so kind of $44 trillion is exposed to nature loss. So we, so we know the risks, but it doesn't mean policymakers or businesses necessarily know how to bake that in to the decisions. And so what we've essentially got here is is uh, is the early spring i suppose of a, of a huge movement much like the stern review on climate change and and how that really led to 
climate change ratcheting up the policy agenda because all of a sudden we're much more aware of the issues. The descriptor review is going to do the same on biodiversity. Hopefully it's going to um, it's going to lead to some key policies more so than pledging to plant trees. Um, I know I know obviously the UK is getting involved in the UN's 30 by 30 initiative as well. Um, and so we're we're seeing the first kind of dominoes fall of what is a complete revamp as to how we view nature and um, how we use it. And and I think biodiversity as well, it's important to remember when, uh, you know, as a journalist, it's important to remember the research. It's not just trees, it's not just tree planting, it's not just peatlands, it's life on earth. It's it's every microorganism that interacts in a, in a, in a species and, a, and the habitats that they surround in. And it's the interdependencies on one, you know, if, if one is at risk, the whole thing is at, at risk. Um, so it's, hugely complex subject and obviously Prince Charles I believe has been saying some interesting aspects about how biodiversity as a term isn't necessarily the uh, the most helpful in understanding the complexities of the discussion and that's obviously where us to ED come in and with the people we're going to be speaking to in today's episode to hopefully kind of really shine a light on what can be done. Well thank you Matt for that absolutely massive macro view and yes I was just about to say that this episode which has kindly been sponsored by the Woodland Trust um, is all about looking at some of these implications for organisations in the private and public sectors in the UK and beyond. Um, and first up we're going to be speaking with a representative from the Trust themselves, their Principal Conservation Advisor Chris Reid. Um, when I sat down to talk with her, she summarised what it's been like working in this space while dealing with the unique challenges of COVID-19. Um, but it's not all doom and gloom. She provides some great rays of hope for delivery and opportunity in 2021 as well. So let's get right into it and play that chat in full. Well, good morning, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you? Very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Um, Any time. And it's it's great to have you on, on board. Whereabouts are you calling from? Are you at home at the moment? I'm calling from home, yes, which is in the east of England. Lovely. Me too. I'm holed up in my office for day what feels like a thousand, but it's probably something like 300. Um, but great to have this vitally important conversation um, today. Um, so for those of you who might not have met you, those of us listening can you give us a brief overview of what it is that you that you do at the trust okay so yes i work for the woodland trust for nearly six years now and my current role is principal conservation advisor so my job is to provide conservation advice both internally and externally across all areas of our business to achieve our vision which is a uk rich in native woods and trees for people and wildlife so i do things like developing and analysing data and evidence to inform our work mm-hmm. and identify how we can make the biggest impacts for nature recovery and address the effects of climate change using woods and trees. Um, so, for example, one day I might be advising whether we should buy a new site for woodland creation and the next day commenting on a government policy proposal for woodland protection. So the best part of my job is getting out to visit fabulous woodland habitats all across the UK, Mm. uh, from the north of Scotland to southeast of England, um, and meeting and learning from, you know, the wonderful people that we have that look after these sites. Although obviously that getting out part has been curtailed in the last few um, months. Yeah, I imagine that your role must have looked a little bit different during 2020 and 2021 one so so far what's that been like yeah so i have been largely um desk based i would say um in the last year or so um but that has actually given us the opportunity to focus my work on a sort of desk based project to develop a new report on the state of the uk's woods and trees right um so we're just preparing to release it this spring and one of the reasons we decided to do it is that there's been a lot of attention on kind of global assessments of biodiversity issues. For example, the Living Planet Index um, and the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. And both those reports have highlighted that over a million species worldwide are at risk of extinction. Um, and even in the UK nature as a whole, we've heard from the State of Nature reports every uh, three or four years 
but we've had rather less attention on the specific challenges facing the UK's woods and trees and what action has been taken for them. So that's where my work has been focused on um, in the last uh, year. Um, but what I would say is one effect of the lockdowns has been people spending more time with nature on their doorstep. And this has become much more important to people. Um, and certainly we've noticed in our Woodland Trust Woods, I've seen a surge of visitors um, all across the country, which is really great that more people are getting out and enjoying nature. And so it feels more important than ever to really take stock of our woods and trees and look at where our efforts to support their wildlife could be best placed. Well, it's good to hear about some silver linings there in terms of public engagement and just the chance to take a step back and feel some of those data and research gaps. But I'm assuming that there were challenges for biodiversity caused by the event related by the pandemic as, as, as well and that it hasn't been a, an entirely rosy picture. Yes, I mean, we have had specific challenges on our sites with the surge in visitors in terms of, you know, littering and, you know, some of the more antisocial behaviours. But for most people, I think it's just a huge opportunity to get out and, and see wildlife. Um, but in terms of developing this report about the state of the UK's woods and trees, I'm afraid what we found there, and I can only really give you a sneak preview at this stage because we haven't launched it yet, but we know that woods and trees across the UK are facing a range of really serious threats and challenges. Um, and some of these are the legacy of sort of past woodland clearance for farming and for urban development, you know, over hundreds of years, really, which has divided our woods into kind of smaller fragments, which are now disconnected from each other. And this has led to a gradual erosion of their biodiversity and their wildlife. Um, Although over the last hundred years, since the advent of the Forestry Commission, woodland cover has more than doubled in the UK. Um, but much of this increase has been of non-native timber trees on which native wildlife struggles to thrive. So that's one of the big challenges that woodland biodiversity is facing. And we know from the work that we've done that today only 7% of native woodlands are described as being in good ecological condition. Um, and as well as these legacy challenges that I mentioned, today's woodland is, to, well, today's world is rapidly changing. And that's especially critical for habitat like woodland that takes a long time to mature. Um, so new diseases and invasive species are killing or outcompeting native woodland species. Uh, climate change is causing mismatches in the timing of seasonal events like bird breeding. We know that air pollution from intensive farming units is causing sort of havoc for woodland plants um, and the demand for land for development continues sort of threatening our most precious um, ancient woodlands and ancient trees. And some of these have been around, you know, for 800 to 1000 years, the sort of time of the Magna Carta and the Doomsday Book. So it's really important that we um, try and address some of those challenges that we're seeing. For sure. And from from what I do, the good news is that I speak to more and more businesses that are really looking to help um, to tackle these issues, not as just a sort of silo or a nice to have or an add on project, but across their whole supply chain or in at least a more concrete um, way. And I know that the trust has a lot of partnerships going on with private sector bodies. And this is probably where most of the listeners are from um, for this for this episode today. So do you have any top tips for people that are looking to um, do more for nature, particularly in a collaborative way? I, I know that it's going to be different depending on what size of business is, what sector it is, where it is and where its supply chain is. Um, but but overall, do you have any advice for us, Chris? Um, well, in terms of kind of the opportunities to act, you know, for biodiversity, there's three big things that Woodland Trust um, is helping with, which is creating new woodlands, um, improving existing woodlands, and also the kind of evidence for that protection and recovery. So the data that we need. So we are working in partnerships with all sorts of businesses to help us to do those three things, um, which is really great. Um, but in terms of specific sort of tips, I guess, for businesses, I think one of the core things is really thinking about how your business relies upon nature. 
um, and how this might change in the future. And you'll probably, if you think about it, you will find connections there all through, you know, supply chains and customer relationships and so on. And we know that customers, certainly the ones that are talking to us, are increasingly looking for businesses to have a net positive impact um, on the environment. So by understanding where your business relies upon natural systems, this can be seen as an investment as opposed to a cost. So in terms of, um, well, one example is we're working with Lloyds Banking Group and their agricultural advisors are encouraging uh, more trees on farms to improve uh, resilience of their clients' land and thus the sustainability of their business long term. But I suppose one other thing in terms of businesses is that sometimes these environmental impacts can't be avoided. So in those situations, we'd recommend partner partnering with the right expert organisations to help to mitigate those impacts on your behalf. So um, at Woodland Trust, you know, we can work with you to mitigate impacts by restoring nature and capturing carbon and so on. Um, and then again, one of the other things is to continually search for alternatives um, to environmentally damaging products or you know supply chains and so on. So every day new sustainability innovations are coming forward. You know, we're always seeing things like plastic bags that you can compost or batteries that improve with age, those kind of things. And at Woodland Trust, we're still searching for the best alternative to the plastic tree tube. Um, so if anyone has any ideas there, we'd love to hear from you. And then in terms of, I think nature and biodiversity are great um, communication tools. So, you know, you can create some fabulous images to tell the story of what you're doing to improve environmental impact. And then finally, I would say get out in nature yourselves. So nature really is the best inspiration. So try things like outdoor meetings or team volunteering tasks. You know, and we've got some amazing sites that we'd love to introduce you to. So, yeah, please come and talk to us. Well, thank you for all those tips. It sounds like there's a lot of moving parts there. You've covered everything from risk and investment through to new business models and and communications. So thank you. Um, I wanted to come back to something that you mentioned at the beginning. You said that when you're not doing site visits or or crunching data, you might be doing policy um, briefings or engaging with government. Um, and I know that charities and NGOs in the biodiversity space have been very vocal in talking to ministers as they try and craft their so-called green recovery um, planning. Um, and obviously, because of the events of last year, we're now coming up very quickly on the biodiversity COP and, and COP26. It seems to have <laughs> flown by. Um, so I wanted to ask what what the trust is doing ahead of those um, ahead of those crucial events, and if if it could write a little wish list and and slip it to the government um, for those events, what what would be on it? Well, thanks for the question. And yes, we have been. Um, talking to government already, obviously, to try and um, uh, pave the way for something um, good to come out of those two events that are coming up. And one of the big things is really we need to see government delivering on these commitments to create at least 30,000 hectares of new woodland every year across the UK. Um, that's really essential for both climate and biodiversity. Um, but it's a huge task. So we're currently creating around about 10,000 hectares a year. So we really need to, you know, almost triple what's currently happening. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> so that, that is that's quite a tall order. And one of the ways we really feel that we could do that, because um, I don't think we're going to be able to do it by planting alone, is through using the use of natural colonisation, natural regeneration of trees from seed. Um, so, you know, this is really one of the best tools we've got to help woods adapt to climate change. Um, but currently isn't well supported by policy or grants. So that's something we'd really like to see. And then one of the other things is about, you know, we, we've got lots of demands on land. So it's how can we integrate trees into farming systems, particularly farming covers about 80% of the UK. So how can we fit trees, more trees into the landscape without taking up space that's required for food production? Um, and that is something that we're working on, looking at sort of different agroforestry systems and trying to promote those with government. Um, and then again, like I said, it's really important to protect and enhance our existing woods and trees. 
so that they can provide that source of wildlife to colonize all this new woodland. Um, so there's no, you know, there's no point in creating woodland if there isn't the wildlife there to um, to come to it. Um, and one of the things we can do there is better biosecurity against pests and diseases, new pest diseases coming into this country. So we'd love to see a focus on homegrown trees for planting that reduces the amount of imports that we're bringing into the country and with that the risk of pests and diseases. So they'd certainly be on a wish list for, well, both cops really um, in that sense. Um, one of the questions I think you had was about will the government do enough for biodiversity? And I feel like we are getting there and the message is really getting through with that interconnectedness of climate and nature. You know, you can't really separate the two things. So these natural climate solutions, as they're being called, are really a vital component of work to address climate change. And they also help to promote nature recovery. Right, well, I've got my fingers crossed for both COPs and obviously we're going to do a lot of content um, in the lead up to them. So I'm, I have no doubt that we'll, we'll be on a call again very soon, Chris. Um, but Great, for now, I will, I will let you go and thank you so much for all your insight. Thank you very much and we look forward to hearing from you again. <laughs> Yes, thank you once again there to Chris for her time. It's so good to hear from the Woodland Trust directly after getting so many of their policy calls to action over the past year or so. And Matt, I understand that you've been touching base with them as well and that we're going to have some more biodiversity content following up from, from this podcast too. Absolutely, yeah. I think we're, we're kind of riding the wave of momentum on this. Um, so we've got the podcast going and then uh, in, in April we're going to have a, an explains guide for business and uh, it's been quite quite challenging to, to put together in terms of actually outlining how businesses can uh, can improve biodiversity, what challenges they face. There's, um, it's, it's not as complex as, uh, well sorry, it's more complex as kind of carbon emissions really, like we just reduce our emissions, we switch to solar. The, the the way it's done, the measurement of it, um, the impact that it has is is much more nuanced. Um, so we're going to hopefully have an explains guide that kind of uh, explains all that in layman's terms for, for businesses, so they can take that and start looking at their own biodiversity strategies. Because businesses will probably start having biodiversity strategies a lot more so than kind of we voluntarily committed to plant X amount of trees. Um, it will that that's what will evolve. We're going to have a webinar on the matter as well currently talking to a few businesses and hoping to get some people that worked on the desktop to review involved uh, as well and um, we've written a lot about biodiversity on the site already and I can only see that amplifying um, as the I suppose agenda matures as the CBD cop swings around and obviously the UK government has actually kind of signaled its intention to work with the Chinese government on kind of coupling those two themes they're essentially COP15 from the CBD perspective and COP26 from the climate perspective are two separate agendas, but there's there's discussions going on as to how they, you know, interact and intertwine with each other. And hopefully by the time COP26 does roll around in November, um, that's potentially still subject to change, um, that biodiversity is kind of a, a key negotiation of, of what any kind of Glasgow deal brings forward. Mm-hmm. Well, as as they say, time will tell and I await the publication of that great stuff that you have mentioned very keenly. Um, for today, though, we have two more great discussions with two more great speakers to get through before the hour is out. Um, the first of them being from Earth Security's founder and chief executive, Alejandro Litovisky. I'll be the first to admit that I hadn't heard about Earth Security before researching this topic for the podcast, but it's a super interesting organisation in terms of mission and delivery. Um, Alejandro is going to explain this far better than I ever can, um, but essentially it's an organisation that analyses data from environmental scientists, conservationists and policymakers and uses this to create new strategies and partnerships between the private sector in terms of investors and corporates um, and between regulators and conservation groups as well. Um, you've already talked about funding here um, and I did some digging and found that nature.org puts the global biodiversity funding gap at 824 billion US dollars per year um, and that's if we want to reverse nature loss at the levels needed. So what our security is doing is critically important work.
But that's enough from me. Let's play that talk with Alejandro in full. Well, good morning, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Good morning, Sarah. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and any time. And whereabouts are you are you calling from at the moment? Well, look, I've uh, recently relocated to Copenhagen um, uh, while, uh, you know, the team is, is in London. And so we're having a two, uh, uh, you know, a two, two, two legged uh, sort of uh, presence. Um, um, and uh, uh, yeah, we are also in lockdown at the moment, but, uh, you know, going through that. Yeah, I'm sure that everyone listening in the UK where I am um can can relate and am i right in thinking it's your first time on on the ed podcast yes yes i'm so i'm very excited about it thank you for the invitation well thank you for for making the time um so f for the benefit of people who aren't aware of of earth security could you tell us a little bit about about what it does and what prompted you to to set it up yeah well um i created earth security 10 years ago um as an organization that is linking um, global finance and, and, and nature's capital. Um, at the time, I was working in business and sustainability and future corporate scenarios. And, you know, it was a time when the planetary boundaries uh, notion appeared very strongly in the scene. Um, and, of course, being Argentinian uh, and having been quite involved in the um, dealing with a fishery crisis back in the 90s, it was a result of overfishing. And so it was very um, quite patent uh, for me, this notion of, of planetary boundaries and the fact that companies operating globally, you know, in different countries, um, as well as investors, were not fully registering the speed at which we were losing and we are losing natural capital um, and the impact that this would have on the operating environment and on the financial and, and social risks. So the purpose of Earth Security was really to... Um, bring more awareness to, to, to a more strategic view of nature, uh, understanding the value that different natural assets have for companies and for industries, and then uh, driving innovative ways in which that value can be realized and, and embedded in, in very practical ways in the way uh, companies do business and, 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 and investors think about um, portfolios. So in the early days, we convened banks and rating agencies and scientists um, to improve how nature's capital could be reflected in the way we look at credit ratings and sovereign risk. Uh, and that led to the first UN-backed partnership of banks and scientists to improve uh, uh, streamline nature in, in sovereign credit analysis, which was very powerful, very inspiring at the time. Um, and since then, you know, we've been working with companies, investors, governments to shape how they embed nature's values in their strategies, in their processes, across industries and regions. And so, uh, you know, I firmly believe that this is this is where uh, we need to go in how we think about new business models and, and, uh, and investment portfolios. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating that you talk about planetary boundaries being a hot topic about 10 years ago, because it's been, in my mind, really top of mind for the past couple of couple of years. I don't know if it was last time at Davos, but the time before there was that big research about just how many natural resources we're using and how few of them get get reused and 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 recycled. Um, but but so during during the time that you've been working in this, what has been preventing governments or even investors in the private sector from properly pricing natural capital and financing solutions to make up for the loss that they they drove before that? Well, look, I, I think the single biggest barrier to, um, uh, you know, investing in protecting nature from a pure financial perspective is that it doesn't really immediately create a ready cash flow, right? And so, uh, you know, the Amazon rainforest is producing 20% of the oxygen uh, that we need to breathe and to survive. But no investors are queuing up to invest in that service. Uh, and so, you know, of course, the bigger question is not just about pricing, of course, but also about how we protect these commons and uh, how we channel finance and resources from governments, from banks, from investors, public, private, and so on, uh, in order to maintain uh, these commons uh, thriving. But, you know, if you if you see it purely from a private sector perspective, my view is the way to overcome this um, is to find those ecosystem services that can be built as direct investable value in the way companies operate and in the real economy, of course. So that then it becomes possible to um, create new economic systems 
that will work in balance with nature rather than depleting it. And so, you know, let me give you one practical example. In addition to sequestering carbon, uh, forests are also sustaining the water cycle, right? So they play a function in maintaining humidity, recycling water, maintaining the water flows. And you're beginning to see companies that are starting to become more aware of their dependence on water and water scarcity, but also more aware of the function that forests play in maintaining water availability. And so, you know, there are instances where water utilities um, are starting to pay into financial mechanisms that in turn pay for forest restoration upstream, right? Because that becomes a much cheaper way, uh, a more direct way to ensure a more resilient water environment. And now, of course, at the same time, those financial products or systems are themselves the product of blended finance and, and innovation, where public finance, governments, foundations and philanthropists and commercial investors collaborate to blend their capital uh, to bring these mechanisms to market. So, you know, I think, you know, the example of fresh water is just very tangible. I think it's going to be uh, um, uh, given that water is so vital to, to companies from agriculture to technology to power generation, uh, I, I do think we're going to see more and more companies investing in nature uh, as a means to safeguard their, their water supplies. Mm. So would you, would you say that there's a risk piece there? Because as, as you say, it's hard to assign a value to the oxygen that we breathe or the water that we have. But obviously, if air quality is terrible and water quality is terrible, you're not going to be able to do to do to do business. So have you seen movements in 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 risk? Yeah, well, look, I, I think what what is um, just going to the practicality of all of this um, you know, if you are running a factory or, or you are manufacturing microprocessors, you actually need very clean water to come into uh, into your factory. Um, now, if that water that is coming in is increasingly polluted uh, or is increasingly scarce, uh, you are going to have to spend quite a lot of money uh, in making sure that you are, can maintain your operation. Uh, and, and that's when companies are starting to to discover, so to speak, uh, the value of nature in supplying and providing and maintaining these services. So, so yes, it is a, a risk element, um, but but it's more than risk. It's also about uh, operational continuity and 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 uh, and business continuity um, uh, that is going to make nature more and more relevant for for, for companies. Now, uh, uh, by no means, I think that this is what the whole agenda should be. This is also, as I was saying before, an agenda of protecting the commons and aligning regulation, aligning public finance. But exclusively from a business and, and you know, corporate and finance perspective, um, uh, my sense is that the uh, value of direct services that nature is providing to keep companies operating is really going to be the, it's the biggest low, low hanging fruit uh, uh, that companies can use to, uh, you know, to maintain that. Uh, in a way that is more cost effective and probably cheaper than investing in alternative options. Mm. And and obviously cost cost effectiveness and new dimensions of stewardship and and risk have been massive buzzwords over the past year or so because of obviously COVID-19 and everything else that's been been going on. And you've talked there about some of the trends that you've seen over the whole 10 years that you've been working. Um, but how did the events of 2020 change change financing for, for nature solutions? What, what did you notice? Well, look, I get asked that a lot. And, and I think we all want to put a lot on COVID uh, as, a, as a catalyst of change. Uh, I, I have to say, um, for me, COVID um, is an enabler uh, of this agenda, but on a, on a deeper human level. Right. So we think about systems that are difficult to change very entrenched in, in the usual way of doing things and, and, and that inertia that really blocks change in, in, in the wider business community. Um, and COVID did away with inertia, right? I mean, people's lives changed dramatically, um, so much so that I think everyone is, is going to feel a little bit more bolder uh, about the changes that they want to make, you know, in their own lives and in their work. And so, um, you know, and our connection as humans to nature is, is is definitely one of them. So we've seen what pollution-free cities could look like. You know, um, uh, we've in, the, in in what people are calling the the coming roaring twenties. Um, uh, I think we're probably going to see a lot of those 
internal change makers within companies and financial institutions get just a little bit bolder uh, and, and less risk averse uh, to driving new ideas and change. Were there also some some negative impacts? Obviously, we are in a recession and we've seen businesses downsize and having to prioritise sort of, you know, they call it emergency mode. Um, and have you seen that at all? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I have to say I'm not a I'm not a techno optimist. I mean, I, I don't think that we are going uh, in a, uh, you know, unique direction towards positive change. I think that the you know, we, we are living through a planetary emergency of, of mass extinction. And so, uh, you know, the, the question is, you know, there's forces for and against. And clearly the recession, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, acts against uh, 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 the availability of money to invest in these sorts of things. Uh, but at the same time, it's driving a massive creative destruction, you know, and, and new companies that are built entirely on the basis of circularity are, are, are emerging and they're becoming more successful at attracting capital. So it's not black or white, you know, and uh, I think the uh, the worrying uh, factor is that is how much time do we really have uh, as these natural systems start to default, um, you know, operating a, a business model may not be uh, that, that is particularly resource intensive may not be possible without doing that imbalance with nature. Uh, and of course, you know, there are bigger catastrophic changes that we, we, we you know, we don't necessarily have to get into now. Um, uh, but, you know, the jury is still out. Are we going to succeed on this agenda or not? Um, uh, I think is, 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 is still unclear. What, what, what I think is more clear is that companies that are taking nature into account in a more strategic way in terms of the value, um, uh, are no doubt in my mind going to be more competitive uh, at either surviving or thriving in a world where resources are m much more constrained. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you so much for your insight. And we've we've talked a lot there about the role of the private sector um, and about the financial um, sector, but it wouldn't be a podcast without coming on to um, on to policy um, as as well. And I think behind this feeling of optimism and of renewed action for a lot of people um, is COP26 and the presidency recently outlined the focus pillars one of them being being finance so what what are you hoping to see during during preparations on on this yeah well let me answer that and 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 also get quite practical about an example that we've been working with um, but I would say that nature still perhaps quite undervalued in even in the mainstream climate finance agenda. And so I would like to see more focus on nature finance as a means to achieve climate climate goals. Um, and this means, you know, amongst other things, helping countries to see how they can restore biodiversity as a means to reach their carbon targets, but also a means to adapt to, to the changes in climate and, and extreme weather. Uh, and nature-based adaptation is less than 1% of climate finance today. I mean, it's nothing, right? So we talk a lot about nature on the one hand, but as we talk about climate change, uh, I don't think we take nature uh, into account as centrally as we as we should. Now, now to the specifics. I mean, we've been collaborating with CDC Group, which is the uh, development uh, investment fund uh, that is wholly owned by the UK government, um, to assess how DFIs can embed nature value in their investment portfolios. You know, and and what we did was to look at one of their investments in their portfolio in Pakistan. Uh, and this is a wind power plant uh, that is generating uh, clean electricity for Pakistan. It's, it is located in the coast, um, around 100 kilometers from Karachi. Now, this project invested um, in the restoration of the mangroves uh, on its sites. And we have shown the, we've produced and sort of analyzed the evidence uh, that uh, shows that the company will make 20 times the return on investment uh, from that restoration over the lifetime of the project. Um, and, that, and that is because the mangroves that are going to grow on the coast are actually protecting the turbines and the infrastructure of the project right. uh, against uh, uh, coastal erosion and sea level rise. And that provides a very powerful evidence for investors that in many ways is currently lacking, even though we talk about nature a lot and we talk about innovation a lot. Um, this is the sort of evidence that can help 
investors, in, in particular in this case, DFIs, um, to start to think about their portfolios in a much more strategic way. Now, in addition to finance, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to say that the business community has a bit of an unfinished business with nature. Uh, and a lot of the progress that was done a few years ago on defining, you know, natural capital valuation for companies has really slowed down, in my view. And and this is a mistake. Um, you know, there are exciting companies that take nature as a driver of innovation. Um, uh, but at the same time, the, you know, the totality of companies in the world and in particular global companies uh, are basically in the dark about their dependence on nature and where are they in the loss of this natural capital to their to them survival as a, as a business. So given the scale of ecological collapse uh, that we are facing and there's no doubt we're going into an acceleration, um, you know, companies need to become more aware uh, about their dependence on nature and begin to make strategic investments in nature as a way to transition their, their business models for the, for the 21st century. Now, whether this is rehabilitating bee populations that are pollinating crops, whether this is about rehabilitating fish stocks uh, to build a long-term uh, sustainable fishing model, uh, or whether this is, as I said before, you know, re regenerating forests that are providing uh, uh, fresh water to companies and cities and populations, uh, there's 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 really a bit of an unfinished business, I think, that the business community needs to rediscover nature as part of that business agenda and really take that forward uh, much more aggressively if 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 companies are going to thrive in this new environment. Well, there you have it. If you're listening from a private sector organisation, that's your call for action for this year. Um, Alejandro, we're out of time for the call, but it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Likewise, Sarah, thank you very much. A pleasure uh, being with you today. Thanks once again to Alejandro for his time and insights here. With the desk up to review in mind, like you mentioned, Matt, I think it's so timely that we're talking about the relationship between finance and the economy and nature. As we've mentioned, nature comes with financial risks and it is underfunded. Um, but this underfunding is probably in no small part due to the fact that it's not valued properly. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I think what lockdown, uh, certainly the first lockdown, which kind of um, is what we're only coming up to a year ago. <laughs> um, the, the first lockdown really made me appreciate biodiversity. Um, and I imagine you were probably saying, and I imagine everyone listening was probably saying so much more than when I was actually able to go out and interact with it. You know, when I was cooped up in a flat, all I wanted to do was get outside and go for trail runs in the woods or kind of down to the park to, to relax green spaces um, just and, and kind of come in uh, one with nature sounds very cliche but that's, that's what I wanted to do and I think I think lockdown has made people appreciate nature so much more and hopefully they'll understand the not just the fragility of it but also the the, the kind of health and well-being benefits it brings to them. I, I don't actually know if I've told you this, Sarah, but I'm getting a puppy in two weeks' time. And one of the things I cannot wait to do is just like get into the woods, take it out for walks, um, and just kind of make sure it can spend as much time in, in nature as, as possible. So I think finance and at a policy level, there's there's clear economic reasons for doing this, but I think just from a hum, hum, humanity level, protecting and enshrining nature is just so valuable to our own kind of well-being as well. Yeah, on a personal level, I would I would have to have to agree with you with you there. It's so easy to take to take it for granted when you're busy and you're in an office. And yes, it is nice to get out on the weekends, but it's not essential. And our calendars are full with with this, that, and the other. But in a way, when your only choice is to go for a walk in nature, you realise how much of a pleasure mm -hmm. that that actually is, and how beneficial that actually. Is and on a national level, I was I was looking into this that pr there's pretty much no nation that includes nature in GDP. Um, you can you can obviously price the forest once it's been cut down, and that company can help the economy. But while it's still standing, it's not not accounted for, which is a great shame. And as you say, hoping it changes with everything from 2020 considered. But anyway, on the brighter side, as you know, there are some organisations that have literally made it their business to go against that system and to value nature. They're going beyond doing less 
bad and wanting to actually do more good and get a net positive impact overall. For many of you, when you think about this kind of conversation, Patagonia is probably a big name that springs to mind. After writing a feature on their regenerative agriculture efforts a few months back, this is a shameless self-plug for my own article, um, it was great to finally get some time to chat with the company's new Environmental Action and Initiatives Director for the EMEA region, Beth Thorin. Um, Beth has had a long and varied career. After starting out in engineering, she moved to marketing, then to environmental NGOs, and eventually, shortly before Patagonia, on to becoming an environmental lawyer at Client Earth. When we talked, Beth outlined how this experience will come into play in the work she does at Patagonia, and she gave me her views on the role of the sustainability professional in responding to the nature emergency, which, of course, is twinned with the climate emergency. Um, she also had some, some advice for people that are working in organisations where sustainability might not be quite as embedded as it is in Patagonia. So wherever your organisation is at on its nature journey, I hope you find something inspiring in this next interview. Well, good afternoon, Beth. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely delighted. Thank you so much for inviting me. No, glad we could find find some time. And where are you dialing in from from today? I'm dialing in from central Amsterdam. I've just been here for a few weeks and it's very exciting. Oh, so what's it, what's it like over there at, at the moment? I must must admit that keeping up with what's going on in the UK is is enough for me. So is it locked down there as well? Yeah, it's full lockdown here as well. So um, the only time I see people is to walk in parks with them. Um, which is challenging because it rains nearly every day. I thought weather in London was bad. It's worse in Amsterdam. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, at least we know that we're not alone. It's currently drizzling outside my window as I as I chat to you. Um, and Beth, I think it's your first time on this podcast, but I think it's definitely your first time on as you're in your new role at Patagonia. Um, I understand you were appointed like late last year and that you've only been officially fully feet under the desk for a couple of a couple of weeks. So could you tell us a bit about what what is it that the Environmental Action and Initiatives Director does? Yeah, um, so uh, just to give a, a I have the sense of being incredibly lucky to be where I am and a sense of, you know, when you have a career, how lucky you are sometimes that uh, it, it, it goes in circles and, and, and takes you to a place you need to be. And, you know, with 75 percent of global GDP coming from businesses, if we don't change how business works, we're not going to be able to save our world. And so I feel such a privilege to have a role working in an organization that is authentically and deeply committed to these issues. Um, I don't know whether you know, but the mission statement of Patagonia is that we're in business to save our planet. Mm. It's a brilliant mission statement, and it really says it clearly that that is the purpose of the organization. So, um, you know, my, my role is to, you know, uh, coach the internal team to do the best they can in terms of being a responsible business and also to look outside the organization and see where we can use our skills to really drive change. And, you know, what are our skills? Well, we've got a one billion pound successful organization. We've got storytelling capabilities and we've got deep, deep connections into communities. Mm, for sure. No, Patagonia is always a fascinating business and always a pleasure to to, to speak with with you guys. Um, and I know you touched on there a bit about career progression and how it can go in loops. And occasionally you get that moment to be where you need to be. Um, and I understand that prior to this role, you had experience working in in environmental law. So could you tell us a little bit more about your career and do you think that Patagonia is, well Patagonia is obviously a leader in the sustainability space but do you think more businesses are going to look for people with with that kind of experience? So uh, I guess two different questions the first bit is uh, I, I, I'll start with a little bit on my career because it's it's sort of what I said you know you have hunches when you're young and you say oh I I really seem to care about the environment I really seem to oh that really feels and you don't know what to do with it but gradually, those feelings, as you grow, become an adult, become more and more important and more relevant. And, you know, 
when I got into business, I loved learning. I was a management consultant. I was a marketing director and I loved learning what I did. But I also had this really strong sense of um, missing something. And that sense of missing something ultimately drove me into uh, working and going to work for some charities. And for the past 10 years, you know, I've worked in charities. The most recent was an environmental law organization, which was incredibly effective. Um, and, you know, you asked the second question, do you think businesses are going to hire more people like me? Well, I think, you know, if, I think if you look at most businesses, you know, they have a corporate responsibility that sits as a pillar alongside other things that they want to deliver. And it's usually the poor cousin. And and that that just isn't, you know, because their main mission is to serve shareholders. And I think that, you know, I hope that we get to a point where we look back on how we do business today with the same horror that we look at imagining that we sat in planes full of people smoking. Right. That's where I hope we get to, because it doesn't make any sense that the only only per, only stakeholder that matters is shareholders, because business depends on a strong society to work in. It depends strong nature in order to be able to, 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 to take things from nature and then put them back. And it's madness that that's not part of the consideration set. And so, you know, I hope that we get to a point where we look back in horror at how things are. So. Um, you know, so I think that's where we need to get to. So I guess the question is, you know, will, you know, today, would many companies hire somebody like me, somebody that's so senior in the organization, somebody who has deep knowledge and who's actually quite strong? Well, I think most companies would be a little bit afraid to do that. That said, I think they should. Wow, <laughs> that's that's fantastic, and I hope that changes um, that changes soon from a position of fear to acceptance of of a challenge. Um, I wanted to move the topic on a bit because our other speakers for this episode have been talking so much about the importance of nature and biodiversity, and alongside all all of that stuff that you've mentioned that you've been doing, um, you somehow found time to get really involved with the development of the National Nature Service um, in the UK. I remember writing about this during lockdowns one and two, but maybe not so much um, recently. So could you could you give us a bit of, um, of an update on that? Yeah, I would be delighted to give you an update. And at the same time, I'd like to tell you about um, what Patagonia is doing around energy communities, because I think it's the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you what, um, what you know, for people who are listening, what the National Nature Service is, so people, if, for people who don't know. Um, but, you know, when COVID happened, I looked around and I was really disturbed by the number of young people and disadvantaged um minority people who were once again the ones that got hit the hardest. They were in unemployment and, you know, it was only going to get worse. On top of that, the nature charities had an enormous financial hit. You know, National Trust alone lost 200 million. So I was thinking, gosh, you know, I, I was just really upset. And so, but I knew that in the States, they had something called the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps and Roosevelt put it in place in the 1920s to try to rebuild after the Great Depression. And, you know, the result of that was 3 billion trees planted, 700 national parks planted, an infrastructure that now generates so much money, especially for the Midwestern states, jobs for the Midwestern states that never would have happened without that investment. So I got a large group of the nature charities, young people together, and we developed a really detailed pro proposal to put to government and, um, you know, with structured training. And it got um, there was a lot of interest from number 10. We got a lot of questions. But in the end, it got bogged down in the shortage of money. And, you know, when Boris Johnson launched his green recovery plan, there were lots of you know, the elements of it were good, but there was no depth to it. You know, he didn't have the money or he didn't choose to put the money, you know, sufficient money behind it. So that being said, you know, Joe Biden has just launched, um, uh, uh, talked about launching a civilian courts, conservation corps in the States. Uh, so I think, you know, it could it could well reappear. So it's it's not dead. But I think what I loved about it was this idea of people together with nature 
and that actually both benefit from it because a lot of times people reject working on nature because it, it they say I've got to protect my jobs and actually this is something where jobs and nature come together um, and that's why just very briefly I just want to tell you about um, what we're doing at Patagonia because um, we are launching a campaign shortly uh, around creating energy communities. So that's where people put together uh, solar panels or uh, local wind farms and they uh, invest in it th themselves and they keep all the profit from that in their own communities. And so that's another lovely example of when you align people's income to protecting nature. And I think that's where the win-wins win are and where we need to be going as a, as a world. For sure. And I can definitely see the links between um, between those those two topics in in terms of approach. Um, we're obviously going to have a lot of people that are, are listening that will be disappointed about, um, as, as you say, the fact that a lot of policy is getting bogged down but in the absence of an official um, national nature service I'm sure there are lots of people listening that would still like to get started now or at least very very soon um, so we, we have listeners not only from businesses but also from local authorities and NGOs so what would your tips be to these kind of organizations for what what can they do now to, to help with these skills and with the nature problem at, at the same time? Um, well, I, I mean, I think uh, I'll answer that in two parts. I guess the first part is that, um, you know, we, we had hoped that the government would step up and, you know, put up the basic funding. And then, you know, if businesses wanted to, then they could top it up and they could hire uh, these young people to plant trees or to fix problems, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, in, in nature. But there's an opportunity to flip it the other way around where businesses can, can start uh, a social enterprise like this or local authorities could start the social enterprise like this and, uh, and bring in money from the government later. So I wouldn't say that the idea is dead. I think, you know, there absolutely is, is a way forward with this. And I think that... Um, you know, in terms of just more generally, uh, it's a complex question to answer. But I think first I'd say that there will be increasing interest as we move closer to the um, climate COP. And I think government will need to be looking for solutions. And so I think I think they they will be increasingly open to opportunities. So I think that is something that people need to be aware of. Um, and then other than that, I guess I would I would just say. Um, innovate because I think, you know, however it is that you do it, demonstrating that this model can work, that we can properly train young people um, and give them job skills that they can take other places uh, is, is got to be strong. So, so I would, I would, I would say press ahead. <laughs> mm -hmm. For sure. It can definitely feel a bit like a chicken and egg scenario with, with case studies a lot of the time. It is. Um, yeah. <laughs> And just quickly, I was hoping to pick your brains for advice for those that are also working on organisations that aren't as far in, the, in their journey. So that is all great advice for organisations where there is already buy-in to be more ambitious on biodiversity and nature. But what about those that are sitting in, inside organisations that, that aren't that far in their journey? What, what advice would you, would you give to them? Um, so I guess uh, I, there's a really interesting fact that um, the best time to change somebody's mind is when their life is in turmoil or, un, or in change themselves or in flux. Mm -hmm. That is the best time to change somebody's mind. So um, and so, you know, if somebody's divorced, just had a baby, just had somebody try to change their mind then. Fact. So. The other fact is that we're in the middle of COVID right now, right? Most businesses are under a huge amount of change. And so I would say to people, if you failed before, don't give up because now actually is the time to go back to your business and say, we need to rethink. So that is the first thing that I would say. You are sitting on a prime moment of change. Now is the time. The second thing I'd say is I think it's a little bit of a stage process. 
Um, you know, there's enlightened self-interest. So you start with that always. You know, climate risk is a material financial risk. If you are not managing to it, you are not doing your duty to your shareholders. That's clear. And, you know, my former organization, Client Earth, worked a lot on that. And that's now uh, in the UK pensions bill, mandatory reporting on climate risk. So, you know, there's a, a sort of growing sense, uh, you know, and I think another example of that is when, you know, people um, stormed the Capitol in the States. You know, again, we had a situation where, you know, if we don't protect society, there won't be a place where business can work. So I think there's a um, using enlightened self-interest is, is a really good first step. But I'd say a second step is then to try to get to a point where you can give your company a target, a challenging target and tension point. So just for example, um, I think M&S is a really great example of this, where, you know, back about 10 years ago, they, they decided that there was no plan B, there was only a plan A, and they needed to drive energy efficiency. Now, that was a huge amount of investment, no idea where it would lead at the time. Uh, huge stress within the organization but in the end result they saved over 50 million in, in in profit that they could reinvest back in the business so that target and that tension led to innovation and that innovation led to money and so i think if uh, or if you can get your organization to commit to something and really stretch themselves then i think that will drive innovation and i think that's what, certainly what we find at patagonia um you know we are so committed to high recycled content uh, within our gear. It's really difficult because you have to. We have to maintain quality as well. And actually, we found that by working with products, our products are better because we've given ourselves this recycling challenge. And it happens time and time again. Same thing for don't buy this jacket. It was another great example of, you know, that sort of challenge around we, we we don't want people to buy more than they need has led us to innovate more and more and to think about things like selling used product alongside new product. So so I would say give yourself a challenge. And then the last thing, and I'm sorry to keep talking, <laughs> but I promise you this is the last thing. Um, think about becoming a benefit corporation, a B corporation, because that then gives you permission to answer to stakeholders beyond shareholders. And with that, I'll be quiet. <laughs> No worries. I could listen to you talk all day and <laughs> there's enough to be said on this that we could be here all day. But Beth, I will let you get on with your afternoon. And thank you so much for your time on the podcast this afternoon. Well, it's been super fun. Thank, thank you so much. It's my favourite topic. And thanks once again to Beth for her, her time there. I think that is a great note to round off this episode with some advice and some calls to action that I think that all of us could learn a little bit from, to be completely honest. We're nearly out of time for this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. And I don't know about you, Matt, but it's definitely got me a bit more motivated for our one permitted daily walk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully I can get out. I mentioned before we start recording, I'm just waiting on a smart meter to show up. So hopefully that's not too late so I can go out because it's starting to get a bit warmer now. Um, there's actually, you can see as I kind of move, there's actually some sun <laughs> in my room. Uh, so it would be quite nice to get out as the weather gets better. Yeah. Is this what they mean by environmental trade-offs? Do you go for <laughs> go enjoy the nature or do you get the smart meter? <laughs> yeah, exactly that. For sure. Um, before we sign off, though, Matt, did you want to re-flag some of that biodiversity content you mentioned? And do you have anything else that you want to remind the listeners about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, April is going to kind of be a big month for us on, on the biodiversity front. This is kind of a very nice prelude to those conversations. We're going to have that explains guide. Uh, which is free for ED users to, to download um, and hopefully kind of spells out exactly what this conversation has been, but in, in kind of more applicable terms to, to your everyday business decisions. Um, we've got a webinar going um, that same month, which is going to really explore the best practice of how businesses are uh, using biodiversity um, to really kind of drive economic uh, growth. Um, and in terms of what else is on the horizon, I will just flag that um, circular economy, which you know biodiversity actually does kind of has a big touch point with in terms of natural um, resource management. Uh, it's going to be a big week for us, the 22nd of March, so about five or six weeks now. Uh, we're going to be running a dedicated podcast on that, um, which Sarah will bring you more information on. We're going to be running back-to-back -back webinar sessions. 
um, on the circular economy and, and single-use plastics. We're, the, the big kind of plastics debate that we did in January last year is kind of coming back this March. So, so look out for that as well. Fantastic. Well, I'll have more information on that one nearer the time, Matt, as you as you mentioned. In the meantime, I think all that remains from my side is to thank the Woodland Trust once again for supporting this episode and to remind you all to go and subscribe to and follow the ED podcast portfolio wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. And for more biodiversity news, our website and newsletter will be your go-to. You can sign up for our newsletter in the top right-hand corner of ed.net. But until next time, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.